0: Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. You're about to hear a discussion from the launch of Latrobe Asia's first policy brief, Cooperation in Contested Asia: How Australia and Japan can shape the region's changing security dynamic. You can see the report at our website latrobe.edu.au/asia. Speaking at the launch were two of the co-authors, Nick Bisley, a professor of international relations and the head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University, and Dr Rebecca Strading, lecturer in politics at La Trobe University. They were in conversation with Daniel Flitton, managing editor of The Interpreter at the Lowy Institute, and it was held at the city campus of La Trobe University on the 7th of
1: September 2018. It's a real pleasure. I'm a huge fan of both Nick and Beck, and have been for a long time. And um, I think uh, uh, with my own little digital magazine, we promote their work relentlessly because they write for us and it's great. And it's great to feature. And I was very pleased when uh, when the university got in touch with me a few weeks ago and asked me to come along to this event and we even managed to twist their arm to write a piece for us on Monday, which is a, a shorter version of the document that we have here. Um, We do talk a lot about the transformation in Asia and we do talk a lot about the influence of the United States and we talk a lot about the influence of China. But when I was reading this and the article that these guys wrote for me earlier this week, the story is much more nuanced and much more graduated. I thought I'd start... Nick. With you, why isn't the? Well, if you could explain for us a little bit about why the story, the Asia story, is so much more than the than the two
2: great powers, the US and China. So there was Richmond and there's Collingwood. Yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. i would leave it there. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I think when, both when you're studying the region, when you're teaching it, um, when you're reading about it, engaging with the newspapers or what have you, you could be forgiven for thinking that what happens in the region is entirely about what goes on between Beijing and Washington, and that the rest of us are all at best bit players. And, you know, given the scale of um, those two countries, uh, the extent of their interests, the sort of global nature of of, um, of their, kind of the, the role they play on the broader stage, it, it's, a, it's an understandable temptation to just want to look through the lens of this bilateral relationship, and the rest of us just have to hope the crumbs fall our way in, or in, w- in ways that are beneficial. And, um, and I guess what, what got Beck and I, and, and as well, we should say um, the, the, the report is a, f- a four-way operation between t- t- Beck and I here and uh, uh, Nobuhiro Aizawa and Chisako uh, Masuo, both at Kyushu University. So it's an Australia-Japan collaboration. But, but when we were sort of kicking it around, the, the, point, the, re- the sort of departure point was to say, not only now, but in fact, for the entirety of the post-war period, um, Asia's international relations have been about a lot more than just what goes on amongst the two or three great powers that are setting the the kind of rhythm. That there's a lot more that these other players do, either to support, to 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 restrain, contain, um, or more broadly shape the kind of terms of the the game, or shape the rules of the game, so to speak, in which um, international relations is played out. And I think that sort of case. To you know, to, to make the case for second-tier powers or whatever you might might want to call them, um, being having a greater significance or a greater influence, was probably a little easier to make. I think in periods when there's less contestation and less hostility. So, you know, the Long Asian Peace, as some people like to describe it, from roughly the mid to late 1970s through until I would argue sort of three or four years ago. So that's the period when China and the US could f- figure out how to get along, through until the period where Xi Jinping decided. <clears throat> that you know, China was no longer content to live in America's shadow. Um, that period, because of that geopolitical um, détente or amity, or whatever you want to call it, um, that allowed secondary powers to play a, a more obvious role. So, Australia and Japan were, along with others, key in setting up organisations like APEC, ASEAN. Uh, both the, the the key ASEAN countries, but also more importantly, probably the grouping itself, was there. But over the past four or five years, as U.S.-China hostility has has uh, you know, built up, I think to become much more, much more visible, and now what it looks like to be a much a quite a durable part of the region's international relations, yeah, you, know, you think the rest of us have kind of receded into the shadows, and yet the point we're trying to make is that now is the time to to remember a that the second tier powers play a role, but b um, it's actually a good opportunity now a kind of the, the the time is ripe, so to speak, in which Um, the the second tier powers can work together in a a number of different ways, and we'll talk a bit about what those might be. But the mistake we make, I think, both analytically engaging with the region, but also from a policy point of view, because there's a temptation to kind of hide behind a rock and just hope you don't get dragged into things and not want to show your hand and to not be entrepreneurial um, out there, because you assume from a policy point of view that what these two biggies do will set the terms for everyone else. Actually, now's the time to be getting out there and trying to, to to set the rules, set the norms, set the institutions, do things to bring the major powers in, do things to try to shape what they do, because they do have they themselves face limitations. They themselves have there's plenty of things that they can't achieve on their own, and they need your help. Um, you know, the most obvious one that that um, <clears throat> and it's it's a it's a visible sort of part of the political debate in the United States is the U.S. depends on on its it's allies and partners to be an Asian power. You know, if you don't have an alliance with the US, uh, with Japan, if you don't have an alliance with Korea uh, and, and relationship with Australia, the US would find it extraordinarily difficult to be the kind of player it is in the region. So that then gives you, weirdly enough, as, a, as a, a junior partner, some leverage, some influence, some scope with which to operate. So that's the kind of long-winded answer as to there? there's always been a place. The temptation now is, is to assume that that, Marginal utility, so to speak, of for second rate power, second rate, (laughs) second tier powers is lower, but actually it's a little higher than we think.
1: We get to some of the specifics of what you mean, but let's keep it um, for the moment at that conceptual type of level. And one of the one of the real rhetorical uh, calling cards of recent years has been this term, rules based order. Beck, if you can sort of help us understand why it is that almost every time we've changed foreign ministers recently but I think it'll continue under the new one that the foreign minister of Australia gets up and makes a speech or we hear from Japan they'll talk about rules based order. What what are we Sort of what what are they trying to reinforce? I guess
0: well, it's uh, Australia is an enthusiastic proponent of this idea of the rules based order, um, but it was Japan who was um, you know the, the sort of instrumental state in starting this um, this discourse around um, you know rules uh, and Australia of Japan's interests in maintaining uh, this order that is supposedly shaped around. Uh, following particular rules, particularly liberal, the liberal rules-based order. Uh, So Australia has um, certainly uh, really pushing their commitment uh, to this rules-based order uh, and in particular, one of the, the um, actions that it's taken in its foreign policy recently in resolving a dispute uh, with Timor-Leste over maritime boundaries is an exhibit or a sign of that commitment um, to play by uh, the dominant maritime rules. Uh, but the problem for Australia is, is that uh, you know, the, the, the whole concept of, of um, supporting this rules-based order is, is really directed towards China. Uh, and directed towards particularly China's actions in the South China Sea. So it's a way of um, trying to target Um, you know, uh, China's pushback against um, particularly the Permanent Court of Arbitration's ruling in 2016 around the Scarborough Shoals and and its dispute with the Philippines. Uh, But the discourse really only uh, constrains Australia, you know. Uh, It doesn't, it hasn't stopped China from, uh, you know, building islands. It hasn't stopped uh, militarisation. It hasn't put a dint in sovereign claims. Uh, So the question, I think, for Australia and for Japan is how do you support that uh, that rhetoric uh, with substantive actions, and Australia, you know, has been reluctant to participate in things like uh, un- uh, phone ops with the United States in the South China Sea. Uh, there this is a is presence. Freedom of
1: navigation. So yes, the freedom of navigation, Sorry, yes, yep.
0: freedom of navigation op- operations, which um, the United States has been uh, holding, Australia has, um, you know, has, has has been very reluctant to participate in those. Uh, and so uh, it, it formed. It, it is actually a kind of a bit of a rhetorical trap because if you're saying to other states they need to abide by the rules-based order then you'd better abide by the rules-based order yourself uh, and there's a there's a lot of um, uncertainty or ambiguity with the concept of rules you know who gets to make the rules what rules matter um, you know in what situations might some rules apply but not others but also you know you've got you've got question of of this rising power who um, who's not happy with some of the rules. Uh, the rules have been created by, you know, a, a group of uh, Western states, de- um, developed states. Uh, and, um, you know, there are other rising states who are not necessarily Um, you know, convinced that these are the best rules for the international order? What kind of rights uh, do these rising powers have in reshaping some of these uh, rules that they think are um, are unfair uh, or or biased towards particular forms of states? Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And these are, I think, significant sort of, there's a lot of complexity around... Uh, uh, the application of rules, what rules mean, what an order is, uh, that tends to get sort of very simplified in our commentaries around this issue.
1: I'm I'm suddenly transported back to my own days in university and thinking about status quo powers versus revisionist powers yeah, 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 and, and yeah. these sorts of questions. But, you know, this is something for either of you, but you, you talked, Nick, about uh, not been not seeing the the change in the region as being only a story of australia and china. <laughs> sorry, not only australia. Of china, <laughs> china and and the US. With ter- with adopting terms like rules-based order and if that's seen as something that's if if not anti-china then if something that is seen as uh, trying to constrain China. Is there a danger that no matter what these small players do, that it just gets interpreted through that bigger prism anyway?
2: Yeah, I mean, that uh, that, that is the real risk of it. I think one of the, as, as Beck was alluding to, the, the, the use of the rules-based order term is very plainly code to say, we don't like what China's doing and China is disrupting a status quo. Um, and, it's, and it's shorthand for status quo. And it's actually a counterproductive shorthand for status quo because Beijing quite rightly can turn around and say, we adhere to about ninety-five percent of the rules, mm-hmm. and and in fact, there's plenty of rules we adhere to that you don't, like you it's know, not, mm-hmm. like the signature of the um, unclaws, the, the, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So it's it's actually and you know and because of the murkiness of international law, it ain't real. It ain't real law, in the words of my my wife, the barrister, who says <laughs> who who you know describes international law as this thing that's not really law. Um, that that you're in, you you don't really get out of the politics because that's an, what it's really an attempt to sort of try to depoliticise it and say there's a technical kind of way of managing international relations. It's worked really well for the, for all of us um, and you, China, uh, the outlier, and we are trying to collectively shame, but without getting into to, to the formal direct language of, of finger pointing. Uh, but but you're right though. The the, the the at the underlying point is that because of this the, the scale of the U.S. and China, because of the stakes of their bilateral relationship, if it, if it does go south, that things tend to to move in in and out of that orbit, and particularly if where you're talking about issues where, like the South China Sea, um, the PR, you know, the People's Republic is the precipitant. So it's the one who's taken the big steps to build three thousand acres of of artificial islands and three kilometer runways and deep water ports and all that sort of stuff. They've done that, so. If you're in the game of engaging directly in hot button issues for the PRC, or for the US for that matter, then, then your ability to shape things is going to be dependent on that larger order. And that's why when we sort of talk in the paper about what it is that, that um, the second tier powers can do, the stuff is not... It, it's working around not on those really hot button issues, but on other areas in which whether they're about other institutions and norms or whether they're about other particular projects or things that can be done that you need to just move a little bit out of the direct sort of line of sight, as it were, of of that, of where the friction points exist between between the big two. Because otherwise you will just drop into those shadows.
0: And that's why it's important to also dig into this concept of what it means to be like-minded. This is a term that is often used in Australian declaratory policy to explain some of Australia's, I guess you might say, special relationships with states in the region. Can you you give us some examples about the sorts of Yeah, so the the like-minded states in the Australian foreign policy white paper were Japan, um, South Korea, uh, India, Indonesia, uh, these are states that are you know principally the like minded aspect comes from the fact that they are democracies in the region um, there is you know and, and there is a wide diversity uh, in, in in the term democracy there among some of these states uh, but these are the, these are the sorts of states that um, Australia feels like it it shares some sort of compatibility with around. Um, the type of regime around certain political cultures and that um, as second-tier powers... Um, that they can form some form of strategic alignment on the basis of that like-mindedness, on, on the basis of that compatibility. Um, but the problem is, is that in fact, Australia um, has very different um, worldview uh, to some of those other states. You know, Australia has found it very difficult, um, for example, to build a strong relationship with its neighbour, Indonesia. Now, Malcolm Turnbull, former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, okay. was really, um, invested I think in, in in the relationship with his um, presidential counterpart, Joe Widodo, in trying to build Um, that relationship. But for many years, that's been a difficult relationship because Australia and Indonesia, they might be democracies, but they don't necessarily see uh, the world or the the world order or the rules based order in in the same way. And India is the same. Mm. Um, You know, India um, has a different uh, set of interests, uh, a different vision of China. Um, Australia might use the Indo-Pacific concept as a way of trying to draw India into its regional neighbourhood uh, in an effort to you know, convince India to be a constraining influence on China, but does India see itself in that role? Um, so what this means for these powers is that they really need to do a lot of work um, in reaching the kinds of strategic alignments that will make cooperation and collaboration valuable and meaningful um, and, and actually produce positive outcomes um, for these states uh, in the region.
1: And, and just, I guess, as an illustration of the way in which the interests of these use next-term second-tier powers don't always align, whether they're actually equivalents either too, but yes. um, we talk about rules-based order. i have followed, and I was a journalist for a long time, followed the debates around Japan's whaling in the Southern Ocean, and Japan, of course, uh, the, Australia took Japan to the International Court of Justice over the, the whaling issue, and then Japan rejected the, in a sense, it effectively rejected yeah. the uh, the ruling, mm. the, you know, so much for the rules in, in that in that case. But... Always governments on both sides would emphasize that even in the case of specific disputes like the whaling or in the case of Australia and Indonesia around the, the execution of the Bali nine, that somehow that the rest of the relationship could be quarantined and we can judge that for ourselves. But I wanted to bring us to specifics I'll say what you want to say, but I wanted to bring us to some of the specifics of the way in which these second tier powers, Australia and Japan particularly, can cooperate.
0: Well, I just wanted to, like just on, 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 I know that you're only using it as an example, but the, the Bali Nine example, I don't think that Australia did properly quarantine that. I think that um, the way that Australian political leaders used that, um, that, uh, de- that not, not a debate, but that kind of dispute uh, over what Indonesia should do actually became uh, a real problem uh, at the heart of the, the relationship. Um, and that Australia should have done more to try to separate that issue out from others. Um, but I think on the question uh, on Australia and Japan, um, you know, they've got very similar dilemmas. You know, there, there is uh, Australia's uh, number one uh, security partner, of course, is Um, the United States, uh, same as Japan. And who do we turn to for trade? We turn to China, Japan turns to China. And so a rising China is actually really good for Australia's prosperity and Japan's prosperity. And that's a tension I don't think that we can really adequately grapple with. It's a paradox, right? Terrified of a rising China and yet necessary for for our own economic uh, prosperity. Um, But that's a shared dilemma. It's a shared structural um, conundrum that Australia and Japan shares. Uh, and I think just on a kind of meta level, that's um, that's a, an important starting point for considering uh, how uh, these two states can formulate sort of coherent plans for dealing with this dilemma.
2: Mm. I, th- I mean, the other thing, like, you know, why Japan and Australia? Well, I mean, Beck's laid out the core ones. But the other point and this is a line that Peter Varghese, former head of Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, I think, has copyrighted. But it's a good one, and that is that Australia and Japan are both countries that can neither bully, can neither bully nor bribe their way in the international system. So you've got to find other ways in which you can mm. have your voice being heard and how you can shape interests in your in your favour. Um, and that, and those circumstances mean that you know you've, you've got to look to be, and, and you, you know, the resources you've got are scarce, and you've got to work collaboratively with others that share your circumstances, and most crucially, as Beck was saying earlier, that share, which there's sufficient shared interests um, for you to work effectively together. So as I, as I said at the start, the Japan and Australia have, um, you know, they've got a track record of doing things. You know, they've got an ability to work collectively that, that goes back away, and APEC is the most obvious one with a, with a longer run history. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also, the other point, I guess, about why these two is that really since 2001, um, they've been working in security in the security area, in particular, quite closely. You know, this is, and and in, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a slightly trite remark, but both of them say formally, in in official policy, that after the United States, which is a big after, uh, Japan Japan and Australia are one another's most important security yes. partner. So. Now, but that's a bit like saying, you know, after oxygen, my most important you know, <laughs> gas is is nitrogen. But, you know, it's... Um, but, but it's still... It's, and and the, the gap is significant, though, between where they were and where they're at now. So, so there's a capacity to do things. There's shared interests. There's a shared kind of structural problem, as, as, as Beck was uh, alluding to. Um, and they've got a capacity to do stuff. And so one of the things that we point to is you know at the moment in this period of flux, yes, there's geopolitical maneuvering, but there's also a bit of experimentation with institutions. And mm. you know, Asia is a place where um, multilateral institutions and processes have really flourished in recent years in in number, if not ne- necessarily in quality. Uh, but there's lots more on the, out there trying to influence things. You know, the the a- acronym noodle soup or whatever you want to call it uh, in Asia is quite can be quite bewildering. Uh, but I think where Australia and Japan have a capacity to work collectively to make either those institutions more effective, things like the East Asia Summit, in which they're both partners, partners. although you've got to put a little kind of caveat around that, that ASEAN jealously guards its role in the quote-unquote driving seat of, um, of the, that particular form of regional collaboration. But another one which I think is quite interesting um, and potentially at, at odds with where current policy in Canberra is headed is the ways in which Australia and Japan can coordinate their efforts to engage with the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. So the Belt and Road Initiative is the big story in infrastructure. It's the biggest story in China's international policy, full stop. Some would argue it's the biggest story in China, bar none. Um, In fact, it's so big, potentially, it's hard to figure out where it stops and ends at, at any particular moment. But if you take a kind of narrow conception of Belt and Road, that's to say a big attempt to build infrastructure and physical connectivity between China and kind of largely points West and South. Uh, It's been, as it's evolved, it's very much a kind of bilateral infrastructure program where you have an agreement between China and Pakistan or China and Sri Lanka or China and whomever the partner might be. Uh, But there's a scope for saying, you know, there's 127 countries, I think, have signed MOUs with with China on the Belt and Road. Now MOUs are fairly empty until you of start adding actual content to them. But Australia and Japan have both been very reticent to engage with Belt and Road, largely because they've not wanted either to, to upset Beijing, uh, upset Washington or have not wanted to give China a win. And, and I think this is not particularly smart because Belt and Road is here to stay. It's the signature policy of, of Xi Jinping. It's in the party constitution. You know, this is here to stay. Uh, and it's also going in whatever form it takes. It's going in various ways to influence things um, for the region as a whole, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, and I think there is an opportunity for Japan and Australia to coordinate how they engage with that, either behind the scenes work out what their bilateral engagement is going to be, or even work together to try to gently, slowly make it a slightly more multilateral organisation. And, and we saw with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, so this was a previous uh, creation that China set up to drive uh, infrastructure investment in the region um, that's a little bit more multilateral in its structure, when enough players joined it, um, the rules of the game changed. China found it couldn't control it now it doesn't like AIIB quite so much because it's no longer quite the Beijing play thing that that, that they had originally envisaged. but there is scope I think for countries to begin to com, to, to engage with and shape how that thing plays out mm. and one thing that you know it's Canberra at the moment and, and Tokyo are both talking about kind of competitive infrastructure games, which mm. I think is not particularly clever, you know, getting into the business of competitive infrastructure investments. So try to play one off against each other. Because unless you're prepared to get into the game of, sure, slice off 5% and send it to your Swiss bank account, which the Chinese are quite happy to do, um, th- your ability to influence prospective lenders, if you're Australia, US and Japan, um, is going to be limited in a lot of these parts of the world. You've got to be re- real about it. Um, and the other is, you know, if you're a prospective country that's thinking about infrastructure and you want bridges, ports, high-speed rail, all that sort of stuff, and you look, who's going to lend me money? The Chinese, who can do this and do it at scale, or America and Australia, those two infrastructure powerhouses, who've just done amazing work on their own infrastructure over the past four decades. Japan is a good, is a notable outlier, has been very effective at infrastructure, but you know the track record. And my favourite was when they talked about the the Australia, India, Japan. Uh, and the U.S. being infrastructure, being infra, a collaborative infrastructure investment program, it's like, yeah, there you go. Australia, India, and the U.S. as key parties to to global infrastructure development and lending. It's like mm-hmm. bloody hell. You <laughs> so why, why would you do it? So, but that's just one example of how multilateral collab, collaboration in and with multilateral institutions, but also in and with other initiatives that are being drawn out. That that requires both a coordination um, and I think ways in which because they're. But because they're adept players and also have significant capital that they can um, bring to the table and can set rules, I think there's a, a, there are ways in which you can be quite productive um, in, in that engagement.
1: Beck, you, you mentioned earlier um, about uh, the other ways in which the countries can work together. Uh, one that I was thinking on too, we'll probably we'll come back to Belt and Road, but on security matters, uh, there's been a lot of talk about a quadrilateral between, between the countries which clearly involves Australia and Japan, but also brings in, well India too, but brings in one of these other key giants in the United States. Mm. Where, where, where do you see the future of that? Uh, that organisation evolving or, or well, what, what was the purpose for it, I guess?
0: I'm not really sure I can tell you how I see it evolving because I don't think I'm really clear on what it is. And I'm not sure anybody's really clear about what it is. Like, is this uh, a security alliance or is this just a loose Coalition? Is it a dialogue where these four states can come together and have a yarn about security? Like, I mean, I think that one of the big problems with the Quad is that it doesn't seem to have a clear objective or a clear structure, uh, which isn't to say that it's not necessarily a useful thing. Now, we had Julie Bishop speak with us. Um, at La Trobe earlier this year. And Nick, you might be able to remember more clearly than I, but she described the quad in her her vision when she was foreign minister um, as a combining of two trilaterals to form a quadrilateral. Is that right?
2: The mess the, the mass is a little peculiar, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, you
0: have you have the, It was the U.S., India, and Japan, and, and Australia, Australia Japan, and Japan and the U.S. And basically bringing those two trilaterals together to form a quad, which in that you know suggests that it's just around you know um, talking about security dialogues. Um, but I think that um, that that that. Uh, In terms of what we're talking about um, second-tier coalitions and about how the the order-shaping capacities of regional powers such as Australia and Japan and India, um, that quad relies upon the United States. So that's really very much about sort of um, bringing, you know, keeping the United States in quite close. Um, And and what we should be thinking about is um, how uh, these, these second tier powers can diversify, can actually hedge against their dependence, can move away from, um, from the United States and form um, other sorts of, of um, coalitions around security. So the Quad, um, we think in our policy paper, we say that, um, that, that a more inclusive kind of um, dialogue would be quite useful. So not just about those four states, but bringing in the like-minded states uh, like Indonesia, um, like South Korea, even states like Singapore uh, or New Zealand. I mean, there has been some commentary around whether or not it should be the squad, or squads, squads. So you know, the but, Taylor Swift coalition, the, the um,
1: <laughs> coalition
2: of the Swifties.
1: <laughs> You'll forgive me some cynicism here, though. In yes. That, uh, Nick talked earlier about uh, experimentation with institutions. Mm. Yeah, we already have an East Asia summit, which mm. a few years ago was billed as the crucial next step different. development yeah. for what, yeah. I, I like the you know um, the noodle architecture, but I, I've always referred to it as the spaghetti architecture of the regional or, or whatever. <laughs> uh, APEC itself, um, as, as you say Nick, Australia and Japan key in driving, it's in Port Moresby in a, in a couple of months time, Donald Trump won't be going. Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps no surprises there in in one sense, but does that mean that that organisation's in terminal decline? And you just can't find a reason to kill it. Um, are we just reinventing the wheel? I guess is the question that I'd have. And when you're when you're those second tier powers, it gives you a a feeling of achievement. Something's actually happening, but you're really not actually. If for the long term creating a, a real meaningful change.
0: I think that's, it is, it's, it's, a, it's an important point. Like the EAS has um, not, that the East Asia summit has not you know, really performed in the way that um, the uh, mm-hmm. multilateral entrepreneurs expected or anticipated or hoped that it would perform. But that's why we have to go back to that concept of um, allocating resources, uh, you know, in a really strategic way um, to get that kind of um, alignment uh, you know, get the shared interests and the common, um, common uh, interests uh, out there and, and not just thinking about issues generally, but also focusing in on sort of niche issues that states can work together um, in, um, in collaborating in a, in a meaningful way. And so that's an issue for second tier powers because we don't have an inexhaustible supply of diplomats. Or uh, other sorts of foreign policy. We resources. have a highly exhaustible supply. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and 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 it's also you know there there are serious constraints uh, that have been placed on some of Australia and Japan's tools, and I'm thinking particularly uh, in Australia, you know, cuts to foreign aid is actually a real problem for dealing with um, China's rising influence in the Pacific, for example, um, and and so it's it's. Um, in that case, you've got domestic politics clashing with these foreign policy objectives. So it's about having a coherent and and sort of well thought out, well designed strategy for finding common ground and for uh, for being able to pursue clear sets of interests with other states in the region that are not just that are beyond just you know dialoguing and you know coming together every so often. Um, uh, to talk about stuff, but focusing in on specific issues, as Nick was saying, beyond just the hot topic, but the things that are happening on the edge. Now, can
1: I, can I, I, can don't, I con- don't want to... Just, just one up. sec. I don't, won't um, labour the footballing metaphors, but <laughs> I, I, do, I will ask the panel to address one more question, but I'd then like to get the audience um, involved as well. So if you've got some questions that you'd like
2: to, to put to these guys... Um, Uh, in five minutes or so, that'd be terrific. So have a think. So I just want to do two quick things. One is around the institutions. I mean, yes, it feels like we're constantly trying to, we're coming up with new ideas and applying these things and nothing seems to quite work. Um, But I think that, that just because the range of different institutions we've experimented with are not delivering the goods, there's still an underlying demand for this stuff. There's an interest in, and clearly states think there's a need for, multilateral cooperation in the security domain, in the economic domain, and across and in and, and increasingly we're seeing those two things connected. Um, and that's that's kind of what that's the underlying motive for saying there's states want to do this and try to figure out how to do it. And I would argue even the quad is a version is a kind of version of that. That's to say there's a sort of sense that multilateral coordination is necessary. Now there's a big debate about what what form it could take. And that's where I think the kind of moment for second-tier powers to work together is... is That's why I think the moment's right. Um, but to come back to more specific, concrete security thing that Australia and Japan both share and something that I think they need to work together to manage is this short-term dependence on the US, mm. long-term concern about US wavering in its commitment. Because that, whilst it's, it seems to be a, a really sharp moment now, so Trumpy has brought this to the surface, both in the sense of realizing, we're both realizing the extent to which we are heavily mortgaged on the US, that we're we're kind of, we're hugely dependent on the US, so that if it were to just say, right, we're done, we're heading back behind Hawaii, we are super exposed. Um, and, And equally, the, the capriciousness of, of the current administration has sort of kind of always been there. I mean, Gareth Evans has argued for 30 years that the U.S. security guarantee is unreliable mm. um, and not just at the at the crazy end of, the, not the crazy, but, you know, that's it's an argument that you've seen at the ends of the political of political spectrum on both sides, that, mm. that the U.S. is not a reliable alliance partner. Um, and again, the current moment says, you know, this is for both of us, this is the dilemma we both share, that we are exposed. And so what, what we recommend in this, in this paper is to say that, this to, to be very IR-y on you, a, a dual hedging strategy. And what that, what we're kind of getting at there is there's a kind of short-term hedge. We need to hedge against the U.S. pulling up sticks and going. So we've got to try to bind the U.S. in and, and make clear why under Trump or, or whatever comes next in that nativist america firsty political tradition that, that's always been there in the U.S. And Trump has just really brought it to the surface why that's, we have to convince them why that's wrong and why they need to be in the region in the short run. Um, and in the long run, Over at the same time, we need to be hedging against that over-dependence on the US and beginning to diversify. Because it's going to take us, you know, a generation at, at, at least to get ourselves to a position where we're not as vulnerable to the dependence on security cooperation with the United States. And
1: in that too, I, I wonder, we talk about second-tier powers, but... All of it depends on context, and we've watched just this last week the Pacific Island Forum, which Scott Morrison wasn't able to attend just having just taken the job, chose not to. But in the Pacific Island Forum, you know, there's a debate there about the influence of China as well, but a country like Australia is far from a second-tier player. It's, mm. it's, mm. it's, it's the metropole. It's yeah. the, 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 the key player that's in all right. that, and that's maybe vis-a-vis... Papua New Guinea, although there's, mm. um, you know, again, China debates around that as well. So what you're talking about there, Nick, in terms of um, exposure, I mean, in a way, those things are already, mm. are already real, um, depending on the issue.
0: You're right. Um, the, the status of states is dependent on you know, geographies, um, you know, where you're situated in the world, um, who, who your neighbours are, and, and the kind of influence that you can have in, in the region. And Australia is a really important player in, in the Pacific. Um, but uh, the, the, the issue is, is that partly that has been enabled by the, its relationship with the United States as well. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of complexity.